Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Art Crime Cast. My name is Nandagan Gadze and thank you for tuning in. Before I begin, I just want to remind you to check out the blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com, which will have all the images mentioned on this episode and plenty of extras. Anyway, thus far in this series, we have delved into a sensational multi-million dollar museum heist, which to this day remains to be solved, case of a dastardly forager whose works a nation fell head over heels for in the midst of darkness and war, and vanquished attempts a decade apart to spirit away two versions of a beyond iconic work. There's plenty more theft, con artistry, and fakery in the topsy-turvy history of art that I will explore with you in the future. But I've been thinking also of some other types of crime that are related to the art world, and how often the reason art makes the news at all is because nefarious and criminal activities have been connected to it. A recent story that did make headlines was the revelations about smuggling of ancient Mesopotamian artifacts into the United States by an American company, Hobby Lobby. So I would like to dedicate an episode to that and the larger topic of black market antiquity smuggling and looting in the future. Obviously, it is a major issue in less than stable war-torn countries, especially in the Middle East and North Africa. As we all know, parts of the region have been besieged for the past few decades by various military extremist groups, most recently and prominently ISIS. Besides looting, ISIS has also made headlines in the last two years for their targeting of artifacts and cultural heritage sites for wholesale destruction. Sledgehammers, grills, and bare hands. The weapons used by ISIS in its latest demonstration of destruction. This video appears to show the inside of a museum in the Iraqi city of Mosul. The extremists strip the ancient statues of their protective coverings, then shatter the priceless relics. Art destruction and desecration. The removal, damage, and destruction of artworks and antiquities for the purposes of upholding a specific version of history or pushing the superiority of a certain person, group, or belief system. It goes back to the ancients the Egyptian pharaohs ordering the destruction of monuments and carvings venerating their unloved predecessors. Early Christians in the Byzantine Empire in Europe whitewashing over mosaics and hacking apart altarpieces in the name of destroying idols. Adolf Hitler's ordering of the removal and sometimes destruction of thousands of Europe's works of modern art, in his eyes unfit to be called art. Contemporary military extremist groups, the Taliban and aforementioned ISIS, taking explosives and pickaxes to thousand-year-old artifacts and architecture, to banish evidence of past glories, to terrify and uphold their narrow view of religious righteousness. Many of these acts mark some of the most turbulent times and hideous acts in human history. They are linked to power, keeping it, showing it, consolidating it. Above all, they show what leaders and groups throughout human history have decided that art can do and what it can stand for. On this, the fourth episode of the Art Crimecast, I explore the history of the art destroyers. Art making itself goes back tens of thousands of years to the times of the cavemen, but true commemorative art depicting specific people begins among the first civilizations in Mesopotamia. This is where we see the birth of a persisting belief in the power of the image, especially as it relates to the ancients' conception of the afterlife. One can find statues of rulers, for example, from the Akkadian Empire that flourished in Mesopotamia in the 2000s BC, mutilated. Eyes, mouth, and ears, the primary sensory organs, smashed off. 
They believed that in the afterlife, the person depicted would lose their ability to hear, speak, and see as a result. The desecration of a physical body wasn't necessarily needed. Desecration of the artwork depicting it was all that was required. As much as these acts served as an attack on the immortal soul of the person commemorated, they also served as an attack on their legacy. In civilizations where literacy was extremely limited and art was the primary way of communicating history, image destruction was practiced by leaders as a way to rewrite history to their liking or deplore an old leader. One such leader was the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, who ruled for 17 years in the early 1330s BCE. One of the most notable acts of his rule, and what ended up destroying his legacy amongst his successors, was his decision to reorder traditional polytheistic religious structures in Egypt. He favored the worship of one central god, Aten, the sun disk, and ordered the rest of the empire to abandon the old gods in Aten's favor alone. This was not a popular decision, and the pharaohs who followed him embarked on deliberate campaigns to quite literally erase Akhenaten from history. They did this by destroying statues and artworks depicting him, especially where his name was carved. In records, they referred to him as the enemy, or similar, not using his name. This was not just removing him from history, it was banishing him and all that he stood for, and he was not the only pharaoh to suffer such a fate. The ancient Romans had a legal codified form of this type of act, damnatio memoriae, literally it translates to condemnation of memory, and the Roman Senate could bestow it on a disgraced emperor or member of the elite, removing all traces of that person from art, monuments, and records. Several fascinating examples exist of art pieces, inscriptions, and coins from the empire where a person's likeness or name has been obliterated in accordance with the Natio Memoriae. These practices fall into one of four primary categories of art destruction that I have determined. This category is destruction for the purposes of rewriting history or condemning certain rulers or acts. Whether tied to harming a person in the afterlife or eliminating evidence of a disfavored ruler, this type of art destruction is most common in cultures and time periods where art was the primary keeper of historical record. A second type of destruction is the destruction of art that is considered sacrilegious for religious reasons. It has its own name, iconoclasm, meaning the destruction of religious icons and images. Our previously mentioned radical pharaoh, Akhenaten, himself ordered the destruction of monuments and temples dedicated to the gods when he was trying to reorder Egyptian religion. But the most significant and well-known episodes of iconoclasm occurred during the times of turbulence within early Christianity. In the Byzantine Empire in the 700 and 800 CE and in Protestant Europe in the 1500s. During these episodes, conflict over what constituted an idol, that which is outlawed in Christianity under the Ten Commandments, led to the sometimes violent elimination of icons, mosaics, statues, and other church decorations by iconoclasts. What we now call the Byzantine iconoclasm refers to two periods in history in the 700 and 800 CE where authorities opposed the use of religious imagery or icons for worship. Byzantine art itself is best known for its icons and mosaic Christian art. Icons typically featured images of Christ, Mary, or another saint, often on a gilded background holding symbols of their sainthood. They came in all different sizes, from personal ones that could be worn on pendants to massive church mosaics. But these were not just images to help the viewer imagine a saint. They were powerful intercessors, believed to provide direct communication with the representative figure. They were carried in churches, parades, and into battle, believed to be truly holy objects to toward which to direct one's prayer. So one can see why some began to believe that people were misdirecting their worship and venerating the image itself rather than the holy figure shown in it. Scholars debate exactly what historical and social trends motivated the iconoclasm, 
but the first iconoclast period occurred under Emperor Leo III, who banned religious images in around 730 BC. It was possible that he began to grow to believe that certain disasters befalling the empire, like a volcanic eruption and military failures, were a punishment from God for the idolatry occurring with icon worship. Leo's heir, Constantine V, continued his father's policy and summoned a church council of bishops that endorsed the anti-icon position. However, churches in the western part of the empire remained pro-icon, which caused further divisions within Byzantium. Subsequent rulers re-established icon usage, then forbid it again in the year 1815. After Emperor Theophilus died in 845, veneration was again restored. As far as the actual art goes, mosaics depicting saints were tiled over with simpler replacement images, such as a plain cross. Some icons were destroyed or plastered over, and very few survived the iconoclast period. Fortunately for art, these periods occurred at the end of the early period of Byzantine art, which lasted from about 330 to 750 CE. The empire itself lasted until 1453. Another famous instance of Christian iconoclasm occurred in Protestant Europe in the 1500s. These outbreak of destructions are collectively known as the Bildenstorm, Dutch for statue storm. Cities like Zurich, Copenhagen, Munster, Rouen, Geneva, and Augsburg saw large Protestant mobs attack Catholic art in churches and public areas. These mobs rushed in and totally destroyed and defaced church interiors, hacking apart sculpture and altarpieces and destroying libraries and decorations. It is difficult to say just how much art was lost, but plenty of examples remain of defaced and mutilated artworks and sculpture, along with eyewitness accounts of the destruction. The mobs were motivated by preachers and radical reformationists who violently decried the so-called Catholic idolatry in excess. One famous artwork that very nearly suffered this fate is Hubert and Jan van Eyck's monumental early Flemish masterpiece, the Ghent Altarpiece, or the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, as it is sometimes known. A priceless art treasure and an extremely important work for its influence on later artists, the altarpiece is a very complex piece of devotional art featuring important figures in the Christian pantheon as well as scenes of the adoration of the Lamb of God. It is a polypiptych, meaning a panel painting that has multiple panels, as opposed to a more common diptych or triptych having two or three, respectively. A brief reminder that all images of, of all mentioned artworks, including the Ghent altarpiece, can be found on the blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com. In its open state, the altarpiece is 11 by 15 feet, with the vast adoration scenes across the bottom half of the panels, and the top featuring full-length portraits of Adam and Eve, the Virgin Mary, God, and John the Baptist. The majesty of the artistic achievement of the Van Eyck brothers in this work simply cannot be understated. The work has an almost unbelievably detailed treatment, including extremely fine rendering of the minutest of details, like folds on the palms of hands, light reflections on tiny pearls adorning robe hems, and masterful rendering of textures from skin to hair to fabric. Though the figures depicted still have much of the more artificial and stylized look, which characterizes medieval Northern European art, the realism of detail in this work makes it a vital link between the stylization of the pre-Renaissance era and the naturalism employed by later high Renaissance and Baroque artists. Known across the world and treasured so deeply as it is today, it almost did not survive the Protestant anti-icon riots of the era previously mentioned. A major group of attackers who 
came to the cathedral one night in August 1550, where the altarpiece was kept and was a major tourist attraction, but they were beat back by guards. Two nights later, a larger mob came, armed with a tree-trunk battering ram, and succeeded in breaking in. The keepers of the altarpiece had managed to dismantle it and hide it in a narrow spiral staircase leading up to the tower of the cathedral. Mercifully, the attackers did not try to enter the staircase, and the altarpiece survived, hidden. In both these cases, the Byzantine iconoclasm and the partisan iconoclast fury, politics and history certainly were considered, but the primary reason artworks were destroyed was because they were perceived to be sacrilegious. Religious belief, as we know, has always been used as reasoning for acts both malicious and benign, and there have certainly been periods in history where art has become a victim of such acts. Then, of course, there are instances where politics and propaganda is central to motivating art destruction. And there is probably no regime in modern history who committed more crimes against art than Hitler's Third Reich. Keen listeners of episode 2 will remember that Hitler was completely obsessed with art, but his tastes were not tolerant of modern art of any kind. Avant-garde and modern art was branded degenerate in Hitler's Germany. He believed it ugly, a corrupting influence, and connected to all sorts of elements of society he deemed inferior. Of course, Jews, but also communists, bohemians, homosexuals, Slavs, and anyone who disagreed with his maniacal theories about race and war. As the Nazi party took over in Germany, Hitler issued orders for the purging and requisition of this undesirable art from state museums, and eventually, personal residences of Jewish collectors and dealers. Museum directors in Germany, who did not want to see the removal of their collections of Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Cubism, Expressionism, and so on, fought back, but they were mostly pushed out of their jobs in favor of people Hitler deemed having the right taste or complied out of fear. Works were banished to attics, some were sold to foreigners to bring in money for the Reich, and many were shown in a demented 1937 exhibition called Entarte Kunst, Degenerate Art. It was a spectacle designed to show the disgrace such works were to the name of art. Slanderous phrases and information was written on walls around haphazardly framed art to bring the message home. Ironically, it was one of the most successful exhibitions ever staged by attendance numbers and exposed thousands to some of the best modern artists of the day. However, wholesale destruction sends off a more powerful message than display. On March 20th, 1939, about 5,000 pieces of artwork, 1,000 some paintings and sculpture, and nearly 4,000 prints and watercolors were burned in the courtyard of the Berlin Fire Department headquarters. It was not the only time the Nazis burned cultural production to send a message. A number of book burnings were organized in the 1930s of literature of authors deemed subversive by the content of their writings, their philosophy, or their race or religion. Outside Germany proper, in Nazi-occupied France, one could still purchase art considered degenerate, and much trafficking and dealing took place, both legal and extra-legal, of modern masters. Nonetheless, on July 27, 1942, in the gardens of the Galerie Nationale du Jeu de Palme in Paris, around 4,000 works were burned by the occupiers. These included pieces by Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, Paul Klee, Ferdinand Leger, and Juan Miro. And that is to say nothing of the thousands of artworks stolen and strong-armed from across Europe by the Nazis in Hitler's quest to capture the best of the continent's art treasures for a massive planned museum once the Nazis permanently dominated. The Ghent altarpiece was one of them. While a great deal of this, including the altarpiece, was recovered later by Allied Art Recovery Corps, some has yet to be seen. 
We can only guess at their condition, but doubtless some must have been destroyed in the twilight of the Reich by those who wanted to hide evidence of collusion or other crimes. Then there is the art that fell victim to bombs and fires, dropped by both Axis and Allied forces. Many works, such as the iconic realist masterpiece The Stonebreakers by Gustave Courbet, were destroyed in the firebombing of Dresden. Of course, much art that took the form of architecture and mural was destroyed in city bombings across the continent as well. It is a true testament to the tenacity of museum personnel and art lovers that so much art in besieged cities like London, St. Petersburg, and Paris, among countless others, was able to be spirited away to safety, with bomb planes sometimes just mere hours behind them. Hitler's personal philosophy about art, that the type that was shown could influence society's course, was the catalyst for his choices to destroy art. There was to be one championed aesthetic, specific cultivated values, and a strict ban on anything contrary in art made in the Reich. It is beyond deeply unfortunate that these practices did not die with the end of the Nazi regime. For decades longer, dictators the world over would try to instill the narrow band of belief onto their citizenry and issue the veneration of very specific, limited styles of art. Often, this included the destruction of any art that ran contrary to their tastes. Quite frequently, this was in the name of creating a new national order. In the minds of these people, ideology and art went hand in hand, and to promote a certain type of the former, one had to purge the latter. It is this type of art destruction, the sort motivated by politics, religion, ideology, alongside building fear and drumming up publicity, that brings us to the actions of contemporary military insurgency groups, the last art destroyers that I will profile here today. In March 2001 in central Afghanistan, an ancient and monumental pair of statues of the Buddha, carved into the side of a sandstone cliff, were blown up with dynamite. The culprit was Afghanistan's then-government, run by the Taliban. The 1,400-year-old statues, sitting in deep niches and cliffs in the Bamiyan Valley, were reduced to scarred rock. Built in 507 and 554 CE, the Buddhas of Bamiyan were relics of a thriving ancient Buddhist culture in the region, which lay on the Silk Road. They were, at the time of their destruction, the world's largest statues of standing Buddhas. One was 178 feet high, the other 124. Though they suffered some damage in their first millennium or so of existence, the main bodies were mostly intact, including beautifully carved drapery of the Buddha's robes. Before the Taliban even had full control of the Bamiyan province, some Taliban commanders had designs for destruction on the statues. Despite the fact that they brought income to the region as tourist sites, the Taliban argued that they were idols and against their interpretation of Islamic law. As their crackdown on culture and human rights and anything they perceived as un-Islamic grew, so did their motivation to destroy the Buddhas. Shocked, the world community condemned the plans and they tried to propose solutions. Ambassadors from 54 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation condemned the plans, even countries who recognized the Taliban government as the official government of Afghanistan. Some countries even proposed volunteering to take and hold the statues where they would be safe in the meantime. Of course, strongly worded international calls of condemnation typically are not particularly effective against savage militant regimes. After several weeks of bombardment, all that was left of the statues were their niches and some scarred rock. Whilst the Taliban argued that the statues were destroyed as an act of iconoclasm and in accordance to Islamic belief, the statues were hardly places of worship at the time of their destruction. 
Reports also said that the Taliban had chosen to destroy the statues after foreign delegations had offered money to have the statues restored. Officially, they claimed it was a purely religious issue. Naturally, it is best to be skeptical of what totalitarian regimes claim in official reports. Furthermore, as we should all know by now, the Taliban's particular interpretation of Islam is very harsh and fundamentalist and hardly represents the belief of, of mainstream Muslims. Their choice to commit this act, documented in photos and video, had a defiant and performative element to it. The idea of literally destroying evidence of prior belief systems and cultures and internationally renowned and treasured heritage sites is a strong metaphorical middle finger to the world community. This community, in large part, celebrates cultural and religious pluralism and tolerance, and these values are shunned by the repressive and militant Taliban. They decide to commit this act of destruction after global condemnation, including by neighboring Arab states, and this allowed the Taliban to send a message that they did not take such opinions in high esteem. Lastly, of course, using rockets and TNT and guns to violently destroy a piece of artwork is thoroughly frightening to the populace. This is what happens to that which is not in line with our brand of Islam seem to say. Performative art destruction. In our modern era, it has been greatly aided by the advent of filmography and especially social media. The power of social media in spreading the message of insurgency and terrorist groups has centered greatly in recent years around the militant group known to the West most commonly as ISIS or ISIL, or simply the Islamic State. In the Arab world, they are often known as Daesh, a derogatory name that the group itself bans in areas it controls. In this investigation, I will refer to them as ISIS, which is the most common name they are known by in the United States, though I emphasize that I neither consider them a state nor an Islamic caliphate in line with the UN and mainstream Muslim groups. Plenty has been written about the, their brutality and systemic abuse of human rights. The suppression, murder, and other war crimes that ISIS has committed against the people of Iraq and Syria is some of the worst many of us have seen in our lifetimes. But alongside their campaign's decimation against the people and areas under their control, ISIS has embarked on a systematic campaign of destruction of cultural heritage sites. Alongside century-old architectural sites and temples, artwork has been a target, as the news clip you heard at the start of this episode details. In 2015, fighters aligned with ISIS attacked the main museum in Mosul, Iraq. Thousands of year-old artifacts were hacked apart with hammers, knocked over, and otherwise shattered. These artifacts date to the empires of Assyria and Akkadia, among others, early Mesopotamian empires. ISIS, as they often do, created a video of their actions, which features a representative who describes these cultures as polytheistic. Therefore, the artifacts are idols and they need to be destroyed. Even though the video does not contain the hideous gore of some of ISIS's other videos that depict beheadings and so on, it is still difficult to watch as fighters attack stunningly preserved examples of ancient art with a ferocious veracity. This is just one of the multiple instances of ISIS's targeting of cultural heritage sites and ancient artworks. ISIS's radical Salafist Sunni religious philosophy particularly emphasizes eliminating polytheism. They, like the Taliban, claim their acts to be in accordance with the teachings of their religion. But their frequent use of video and broadcasting to document their brutal acts shows the enormous propagandistic value that these acts have. ISIS is known to participate in the looted antiquity black market, and artifacts such as these found in the museum in Mosul are priceless. The fact that they choose to sell some artifacts, even as they destroy others, show that they are calculated in their destruction. They destroy to breed fear and to suppress past cultures and belief systems whose history is enshrined in their artifacts. The destruction is a form of terrorism and a direct assault on any pride the people of Iraq and Syria had in their past. 
For ISIS, there can only be pride in their acts, their system of belief, and their leadership. In 2015 too, ISIS did brutal damage to the preserved UNESCO World Heritage Site that is the ancient city of Palmyra in Syria, which was established in the 2nd millennium BC. Upon its capture in May of 2015, ISIS detained archaeologist and local head of antiquities, Khaled al-Assad, custodian of the site for over 40 years and called the Howard Carter of Palmyra, al-Assad devoted his life to promoting and protecting the vital ancient site under ISIS captivity. He was said to have been interrogated for information about the location of hidden antiquities, which he refused to give up. On August 18th, fighters took him to a public square where he was beheaded with a sword. They hung his body from a traffic light with a sign listing his crimes as so-called idolatry, including with heretics and infidels. He was 81 years old. As of the recording of this episode, the Iraqi army has retaken the city of Mosul, which was a major blow for ISIS after three years of control. What actually remains of the besieged city is another question. Many historic sites within the city have been reduced to rubble, including centuries-old mosques and churches. So this is the part where I go off script because I did not write an ending for this episode, actually. Um, my initial idea was to kind of end with some sort of more heartwarming story or kind of bring it back around and talk about, you know, some of history's famous art protectors and times when art destruction was averted and art was saved and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I decided I didn't want to have to force a happy ending. Um, all this stuff with ISIS is still going on, as I said, and you know, art destruction has always happened. It's going to continue to happen. You know, when they are gone, someone else will take their place and malicious people will always take advantage of art and people's emotional tie to it and and they'll destroy it because they want to send a message. They want to consolidate power. They want to promote a certain version of history, no matter how wrong that might be. It's difficult, I think, sometimes to talk about art destruction, especially when we're talking about contemporary conflict, because the human toll of these conflicts is so great, and we hear about it all the time, the streaming out of refugees, the awful beheadings, the, you know, besieged cities that are just rubble, and, you know, people can't live there anymore, and that kind of thing. So when you weigh, when you weigh that sort of thing against art, the destruction of an ancient city, or the, you know, pickaxing of a of an ancient sculpture anything like that you might it, it might kind of seem like frivolous to 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 be so concerned in the face of you know what is ostensibly a much um, much more real and human uh loss that sort of thing but ultimately i think when you look at people like Khalid al-Assad you see that art and antiquities and cultural heritage is something that people are willing to give their lives to protect it these these sites are not just places they are symbols and they are timekeepers and they are sources of pride so ultimately at the end of the day art is something that needs to be considered for protection when we have these conflict times and luckily we have things like UNESCO which you know pay close attention to uh, world heritage that is in danger of destruction I'm reminded of, when I talk about this, I'm reminded of a quote that I actually did on an old teacher's, old art teacher's wall. Um, I've heard it attributed to a couple different people, but most commonly to the artist Jasper Johns, who was a proto-pop artist in um, the East Coast in the 1950s. Um, the quote is, art is much less important than life, but what a poor life without it. So it's difficult to convince people that art is important 
especially in these conflict situations, but when it's gone, it certainly leaves a hole. I guess the hopeful note uh, to end this episode on would be the thought that similarly to like when you're painting uh, an art, you can't go back and save art that has been lost or destroyed or stolen. Uh, you can't go back and change history that you've already, that, that evidence of which has been destroyed similarly in the way that you can't take back a paint, a stroke of paint once you've already put it on the canvas. But you can always put new paint on the canvas and there's always going to be new art. Uh, no matter how, no matter how besieged the people are, no matter how, how much hardship they face and, you know, the evil that surrounds them um, and attacks their life, people have always made art. They're always going to continue to make art. They're never going to stop. And, and I think it's one of the best ways that we can see the persistence of humanity and the persistence of hope. Uh, thank you for listening very much. This has been episode four of the Art Crimecast. Don't forget to check out the blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com. Some really fascinating images there. The supplemental clips and audio in this episode are in the order that they are heard. The intro music is Slavic March by Tchaikovsky. Then ISIS destroys ancient artifacts in Mosul, a clip from CBS This Morning from January 27, uh, 2015. Pharaoh Ramses III by Derek Feichter. Lacrime or Seven Tears by John Dowland. Requiem by Mozart. Uh, and outro music is Nocturne's Opus 9, number 2 by Chopin. Uh, real quick, I just want to shout out to two loyal listeners. Uh, the first being James, who listens to this podcast from the United Kingdom, which gives uh, it an international uh, listenership, shall we, shall we say. So thank you. And the second person is um, Griffin, who listens to these at night when he's lying in bed. So I'm sorry this one is so depressing, but I hope you still have nice dreams nonetheless. <laughs>